and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast, where you can learn powerful techniques to change the way you feel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski, and joining me here in the Murrieta studio is Dr. David Burns. Dr. David Burns is a pioneer in the development of cognitive behavioral therapy and the creator of the new teen therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 30 languages. David is currently an emeritus adjunct professor of clinical psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 149. Hi, David. Hello, Rhonda. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Yeah. A lot of, lot of exciting things going on. And remind me at the end of this podcast, which I almost forgot, to uh, give people uh, an update on the three coming summer intensives. We'll save the commercial for the end of the podcast. Okay. That's always an exciting thing to get people to come to. Hey, so I wanted to talk to you about something. Someone provided feedback to you uh, when you did the Feeling Good podcast survey. He wrote, or she wrote, Dr. Burns, you seem to disregard healing modalities outside of CBT. CBT is wonderful, and nobody teaches it better than you, Dr. Burns. I believe that it's a foundational practice to well-being. However, working with different difficult emotions is very important and not always well addressed through CBT alone. Thinking CBT is the answer for most issues is loaded with cognitive distortions. Example, discounting the positive in other practices, all-or-nothing thinking, magical thinking, and seeing CBT as a cure-all. In my personal healing journey, CBT has been absolutely essential and foundational, as has self-compassion, learning to let things go, inner child work, mindfulness, somatic awareness, and more. I have noticed there has repeatedly been a dismissive tone for other valuable practices. Obviously, the Feeling Good podcast is about CBT and sticking to your expertise is essential. However, I would be careful not to disregard other healing practices that could potentially help someone out. Someone out. I have such respect for you, Dr. Burns, and your team, but your words carry weight. Please be thoughtful about discounting other methods that could be helping someone. Well, thank you so much for that feedback. This was the best written and most thoughtful negative feedback we got when I did the survey of, of listeners, and the, the, the feedback about the podcast was just overwhelmingly positive. And when someone's uh, brave enough to say, I don't like this, or I don't like that, or I don't agree with this, that, that, that's, that's really important and something I value tremendously. Uh, and let me say to this person, whoever you are, we're, we're really pretty much on the same page, surprisingly, in, in all of the points that you made. First, I would want to say I'm, you know, I'm really flattered to be thought of as one of the early contributors to to cognitive therapist, to cognitive therapy. But I don't now and have never really promoted cognitive therapy or any any school of therapy. Uh, the uh, the new thing I've created, Team, which we kind of call Team CBT, is not really a school of therapy, but it's a structure based on research for how all of psychotherapy works. Uh, and I'll, we can talk a little about, about that in a, in a few minutes, but um, CBT is definitely not the answer to all problems. Even in the early days when I was doing 
primarily CBT because it was new and uh, in the 70s and early 80s, it was, you know, really, really big and, and really exciting to people. But even there, I emphasize that it wasn't the, the cure-all for, for all problems. It, it, it's, it's unfortunate that when people create a new school of therapy, like DBT or CBT or EMDR or whatever it is, it, it starts out focusing on a target population like borderline personality disorder or maybe OCD or, or, or trauma or, victims. Yeah, or, de- or trauma, depression. Survivors. And then the, uh, the people who create that type of therapy suddenly discover, or so they think, oh, this is going to be good for everything, and then they apply it to everything. And I've always felt and argued and spoken consistently since the late 1970s that this is a huge mistake. Uh, the first thing I realized is that when I began to use CBT for anxiety after my first few years was really working almost exclusively with, with depression, I found it was partially helpful for depression, but other modalities were, were absolutely needed. That You couldn't cure most anxiety with CBT alone, and so I added anxiety uh, or exposure, which is incredibly important, and we'll be practicing that tonight in the Tuesday training group, you know, teaching the students there 20 or 30 different powerful forms of exposure. And then I added the hidden emotion model, which is incredibly important in the treatment of anxiety. Now, I've never used it for depression or for relationship con- conflicts, but it's it's something unique that's really important to understand and treat anxiety. And then in recent years, we've added the motivational model as well. Another example of how CBT isn't good for, for everything. Is CBT, I'm sorry, you, I, you said something that confused me. Is CBT used, was it used, did you use it primarily with depression when you first started? Yeah, it was a new treatment for depression. And, and, uh, and then you added anxiety. Well, then when I went into private practice, I, you know, I didn't, I found people didn't have just depression and people came with a whole variety of complaints. So I had to start learning how to treat all kinds of things. And initially I I tried to treat anxious patients with, you know, cognitive therapy alone, but I found exposure was incredibly powerful. And that's not cognitive therapy. That's, uh, you know, always been viewed as, as behavior therapy. But and then they decided to change the name from cognitive therapy to cognitive behavior therapy, so oh, they could so add can, more stuff, so to right, speak. So they can put them together. Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. And uh, and then if you keep merging different things with cognitive therapy and calling it cognitive therapy, then cognitive therapy can treat everything. But then cognitive therapy has no meaning. You huh. see, it's just a, right. a kind of a slang word for what works. Yeah. If it works, we'll call it cognitive therapy. But exposure therapy is not cognitive therapy. It's something you know, quite different, but complementary. And then when I started treating people with troubled relationships, I, I found they had all the same distortions as depressed patients have, but they're directed at someone else. So if you're ticked off at your husband, you might be saying, oh, he, he never listens. Well, that's discounting the positive. It's, a, it's an overgeneralization. It's all or nothing thinking. It's blame. It's a should statement. It's emotional reasoning. Uh, it's discounting the positive. It has all the same distortions. However, if you try to use cognitive therapy in the treatment of relationship problems, not only will it never work, 
almost never work. It will virtually always make the problem worse. Right, it backfires. Oh, sure. And I re- realized early on this this is not this is not good. In fact, I even had a hundred and fifty thousand dollar advance from my publisher for a book on cognitive therapy for relationship problems. It was called Couples in Conflict and Couples in Love. And I sent it to my editor, Maria, and she said, Ah, oh, darling, this is going to be a number one bestseller. And, and she said, this is fantastic. And indeed, it read great. But I, it started, I, I realized that it, it, the techniques actually didn't work with, with troubled couples. They, they sounded good, but they weren't effective. So after six months, I finally just sent the money back. It broke my heart and said, I've got to break this concept because I don't care if it's a number one bestseller. It, 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 the book doesn't have integrity, mm. you know. And, and then eventually I came up with uh, Feeling Good Together, which is a whole radically different model for treating relationship problems. But uh, sometimes the people who, who originate something, uh, they, they see themselves as incredible, powerful, and important, and wise, and they, they think their therapy can be applied to everything, and CBT has been used for addictions. I don't use it for addictions. It's used for bedwetting. They're using it now for schizophrenia. I, I learned early on, uh, at least in my hands, it, it was totally uh, useless for treating people with, with schizophrenia, although I found ways to be helpful, but that, that's just a sad and tragic mental disorder based on true abnormalities of brain wiring or tissue on, on some level. It's, it, it's very, very, very sad. But you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, it, it's never good to think of a, a school of therapy as being helpful for, for everything. It just and you, you told me you've told me before that some of the methods you use are really psychoanalytic or psych, psychodynamic in nature. Well, yeah. During see, t- team is te- as you know, Rhonda, testing, empathy, agenda setting, and, and methods, and and the TEA is how you set up the intervention, the testing, the empathy, melting away the therapeutic resistance, finding out what the patient wants, help with that that type of thing. But during the methods phase. You can use methods from any school of therapy, uh, and and if you like meditation, you can use meditation. If you like aerobic exercise, you can use aerobic exercise. I don't use them myself. I don't recommend them. They they haven't been helpful in my experience. Or other methods are so vastly more powerful in, in my hands that I I stick with specific methods that target each patient's specific negative thoughts, if it's depression or anxiety or, or how they're communicating with someone if it's a relationship problem or that targets their motivation uh, if, it's, if it's a habit, habit or addiction. But you can use any methods. And in team, uh, there's at least a minimum of 12 other schools of therapy that are, that are represented in team, we've got cognitive techniques like externalization of voices, acceptance paradox, experimental technique, some of the early Beckian, Beckian methods. There's behavioral techniques like little steps for big feats, the anti-procrastination sheet, the I stubbornly refuse technique, tons of behavioral activation techniques. Those are behavioral, they're not cognitive, although you can set them up with cognitive dimensions to make them more interesting. There's at least 
at least 35 different kinds of exposure te techniques, classical flooding, classical exposure, cog uh, gradual exposure, cognitive flooding, time travel, memory rescripting, shame attacking exercises, all, all kinds of exposure techniques, tons of new motivational techniques. We probably, I probably created at least 15 or 20 new motivational techniques since we created created team like the magic button, the magic dial, positive reframing, pivot question, acid test, paradoxical cost-benefit analysis, tons of interpersonal techniques like the relationship journal, five secrets of effective communication, uncovering techniques like the individual downward arrow, the what-if technique, the interpersonal downward arrow, which is a psychoanalytic technique. The hidden emotion is a psychoanalytic technique or a psychodynamic technique. There's paradoxical techniques. There's gestalt techniques. There's spiritual techniques. Hypnosis. And, and so there's, there's and, and you know, some of you who are listening probably have tremendous techniques that I've never heard of and my colleagues have never heard of. And if, if, you, if you show me some data, the before and end of session data, and, and show people for whom a technique has been dramatically helpful, then I'll want to come and learn from you rather than, than vice versa. And so before I go on, there's a couple other uh, more things I want to mention, but any I've been shutting you out a little bit on this one. No, so. it's really interesting. I, all, of, all of what you're talking about is new to me. Because I, I thought all, everything that you said is encompassed under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. The only reason we're using the name cognitive therapy is because some colleagues have told me for marketing purposes, you've got to stick with cognitive, get cognitive therapy in there because no one's heard of TEAM yet. Right. So I agreed to call it Team CBT. When I created the name Team Therapy, the, the we were, argument was should we call it High Speed CBT or Team Therapy? And because it's so different from conventional cognitive therapy, I went with with team therapy. But uh, you you could certainly you know call it cognitive therapy, and and that that does have much more pull from a marketing perspective. When I I never think of these things. See, when I wrote Feeling Good, there were only maybe seven cognitive therapists in the world, and maybe a dozen people had heard of it, and half of them thought it was quackery. Really? And, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when I used to give presentations on it with Beck, you know, people would be throwing tomatoes at us. And when was that? In the early days of cognitive therapy. Any time you come up with something new that's radically different that challenges people, you you get you get a lot of pushback. And then we didn't know how to present it well either. We we were kind of presenting it in this adversarial way, and then of course people. They, be, they fought you. Yeah. 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 Right. We, we thought it was because they were losers, Beck and I <laughs> no. did. We didn't realize it was just because we were, were not skillful at the way we were connecting with, with you people. You know, you probably don't know this, but when I ran the treatment program for juvenile sex offenders, that was in the 80s, we, it was all based on cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. But shouldn't be, because, because juvenile sex offense is not a cognitive problem. It's a motivational problem. It's in the habits and addictions arena, and there there could be some cognitive piece to it. But again, it, you know, everyone wants oh, we got to do cognitive therapy for juvenile sex offense because it's it's good for depression. It must be good for what ails you. Well, it's good you. for also for changing person's behavior and the person, the way you think and and distorted thinking is a lot of uh, is embedded in sexual. Um, yeah. Yeah. But see, here I'm the one who's talking against cognitive <laughs> therapy as a treatment for, for sex You're surprising me. It actually worked. 
So, well, and there was data about well, it, so well, don't put it down for that. It, it works. No, uh, cognitive we, behavioral we, therapy worked well, well we within that arena. That. See, no, I do. That. We know that uh, Rhonda was effective, <laughs> but we don't know what it was about Rhonda's work that, that was effective. And that's why we have to be cautious, you know, when we're making claims about cognitive. No, no, I, there is research or, about it. Okay, you don't okay. believe me. You don't believe me, but... Well, I, I believe very much that, that what you were doing was, was somewhat effective for, for some of the, those people yes. and probably not very effective for some of them. That's as, 100% as well. accurate, yes. And uh, beyond that, I, I'm cautious and drawing No, that's 100% accurate. But um, now, as far as my thinking, everyone should use cognitive therapy. I, I would prefer it if no one uses cognitive therapy because it's a school of therapy. And people get angry with me uh, when, when I say that I think we should get rid of all of the schools of therapy. And, and, and I, I think they compete like religions or cults. They all have some great insight. Some of them, but not all of them, have at least one or two or three useful treatment techniques. Some of them, quite a few useful treatment te techniques. But the problem with, with them is... They, they compete with each other just like like religions, and they mostly have a, a guru at the head who people rever, revere and, and think it's some you know fantastic person. And um, I, I think those perceptions of the the great leaders of our field are, are somewhat like 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 hero worship, and, and to be honest, in, in many if not most cases, not. Not not well well deserved. That when when you get to know some of these people, you you see that that they have clay feet and that that they sometimes have a, a dark side. That yeah, that, just like everyone. Yeah, just like everyone. That that but not just like everyone. I'm saying more more, more than almost everyone. That the, that there's a lot of narcissism that that drives th these people. It's the same same in politics as mm -hmm. as as well, but. Uh, Team is not a school of therapy, just a, a structure. But there are certain ingredients that I, I do think all therapists should use or consider using, like the testing be, before and after every therapy session. I, I think is mandate should be mandatory, and it's my prediction that in the future it, this will be required by by licensing agencies, just as an X-ray machine is required for for an emergency room. It's not like we have a school of x-ray medicine, although there are radiologists who read them, but we have many tests, many many treatment methods. But but the fact that you measure, you, you take the blood pressure, you get the blood test, you, 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 you test to see what do the lungs look like inside, you do your, your MRI, those things must be a part of modern medicine. And I believe that testing not only symptoms at every session, but also the patient's rating of the therapist's empathy, the therapist's warmth, should be should be mandatory. In addition, I think I, that's pretty scary for a lot of people. Huh? I think that's testing before and after each session is scary for a lot of therapists. It is. It is scary. That you know, when I've mentioned it to colleagues of mine who don't practice team, they're always surprised and and say, "Oh, I'm glad I don't do that. I don't want to know what my patients think." Yeah, exactly. When, when I created my, my empathy scale for the first time, I, I, I decided to give it a, to this woman who, who had been you know, pretty critical of me. And I thought, well, 
she'll be a good one. And I said, would you mind filling this out between now and next session? You can rate how I did today. And if I was warm and caring and if I understood you and, and also the helpfulness scale. Uh, and then the next week she came back. I forgot I'd given it to her. She was the first, the first person that ever took, took the, that test. And uh, halfway through the session, she said, Did, didn't you want to see how I rated you last session? And I said to her, not particularly. <laughs> but I, yeah, right. I, I took it. And, you know, I was surprised. She, she had some really nice things to say. She also had some criticisms. And then as we talked it over, it, it, it deepened our relationship. And I thought, man, th- th- this is a powerful tool, but it, it, it's, it's frightening because, see, some therapists wrongly believe my patients won't be honest with me when they fill out these tests, so the tests are no good. The problem is that, that the patients are honest, and it's, it's very painful for the, for the therapist to, to see when they're getting failing grades on empathy from the patient, failing grades on, 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 on helpfulness. Yeah, it's kind of irritating yeah. and, and disappointing. Yeah, and then, yeah. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of feelings that the therapist has to manage yeah. on their own before they can interact again with their their patient. Sure, you, you may be feeling ashamed. When when I get a bad rating, I I, I feel shame, or you may may feel anger, like pissed off, like like what the hell? I did a great job. How yeah. could you say that about me? Yeah, yeah. That's that's unfair. And then even our whole field is set up. I was trained to say if the patient is critical of you. That's because of their childhood, troubled childhood. Or they're projecting something. Yeah, that's, that's what the, my supervisor said. So ask them, oh, if they're critical of you, say, oh, do, do I remind you of your father? And then they say, well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> or you say, you know, you could just sort of put it all on them and say, are, are, you know, are you critical of many people in your life? Right. Is that a problem that you experience? Right. But at any rate, you've got to have great empathy, and that's why, as you know, Rhonda, we've developed and use all the time in our Tuesday group really severe empathy training te- techniques that really hold the the students' feet to the fire. Role play techniques. We we give grades immediately, and and we we, we don't see that 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 the empathy the E of, of team is going to cure anyone of anything. But you've got to have great empathy. In anything you do, even this podcast. See, I'm being criticized by someone who is listening to the podcast. And if they decide they've responded with warmth, with humility, with, you know, with, with kindness, then we'll have a deeper, deeper relationship. You, and it's the same in therapy. You've got to have that teamwork with, with, with your patients to use powerful techniques. And then I think the A, the paradoxical agenda setting methods that we've developed are massively important. Every therapist from the time of Freud has said resistance exists, but not too many of them have shown us how to get rid of therapeutic resistance. And that's where I think most schools of therapy, whether it's uh, you know inner child work or EMDR or ACT or Adlerian therapy or Jungian therapy or whatever it is, if you don't know how to melt away the patient's resistance, you're, you're going to be in for a long haul with many of your patients. And if you do learn how to eliminate or reduce therapeutic resistance, you'll have much greater effectiveness. 
So that's pretty much it. I, I agree also with this listener that there are a huge number of healing modalities that have been with us for thousands of years, and they all have various kinds of effectiveness. Uh, when I was a medical student at Stanford, I was a horrible medical student. You say that all the time. Yeah, well, I was. I, I, I was. And, I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's probably a good thing I was because I was out on the street instead of going to classes, and I was learning how how to party, how to pick up women, how to have fun, how, how to, you know, communicate, how to, how, to, how to be a human being, learning about the magic of, of life. And the stuff I learned on the streets helped me way more as a psychiatrist than anything I learned as a medical student by going to, to classes. But uh, psychodrama was one of the things I got into. And, and it was terrifying, but it was mind-boggling. We'll, we'll talk about it sometime on the podcast. Yeah, I think so. And and then I, I, I went to Rough Rock, Arizona and spent a month on the Indian reservation there with the Navajo people. And I got to go to uh, like healing healing ceremonies. There, there was a woman who was, I guess she had agoraphobia or something, but she wouldn't come into the village. She would, wouldn't leave her hogan. Wow. And so they said there was going to be a healing ceremony outside of her hogan. So... And I had a couple friends visiting me, Gene Altman, who was also in my medical school class. And uh, so it was in the middle of the night, and they said, be okay if we came. And and so there was a fire, and all the people were dancing around it. And it was so weird because uh, we got in the circle and started dancing. And, you know, they're, they're going, ho, ho, you know, like, and so we were chanting with them. And all of a sudden, I realized they were singing songs of the south like like um swanee river and stuff oh but in this indian kind of dialect wow. or kind of oh, 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 oh river. and then all of a sudden they were saying welcome you know to us they were talking to us oh wow and it was it was pretty psychedelic the the pot we were smoking helped a little too <laughs> I I think. <laughs> <laughs> You're leading us down a wrong path. <laughs> it was it was really it was really cool, and uh, and then the next day I I was in the in the. But it village. sounds like it was kind of it was an honor for them to have included you in oh, this yes, process. Oh yes, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, it, yes, it was yeah, a very, we, and the, and they were showing love for this this woman, and right. we take seriously that that you're hurting, and I'm sure the medicine man had a hunch, you know, that this is just an emotional thing. And then I saw her the next day. She was in the town in the post office and talking to people, looking pretty happy, happy and normal. And uh, so there's all these the, these these healing things. But I think one of the things that you've talked about a lot is that you want to do work or therapeutic methods when you know there's research that backs them. Like just now, what we were talking about with the sex offender treatment, you want to know that research. It's research-based. It's not just out pie in the sky. I think we need to, to move into an area of research-based, data-driven uh, psychotherapy, and, and not just this outcome research, which is important, but it's fallen short, because all the outcome studies of the National Institute of Mental Health on the treatment of depression with everything, nothing has ever shown effectiveness for even 50% of the people with depression. 
and, and effectiveness is designed in very modest ways, generally a 50% reduction in scores on the Beck Depression Inventory, and that's not asking much. And yet, more than 50% of the patients do not even achieve that when treated with every known form of psychotherapy, every known healing modality, including antidepressants. There isn't anything out there that's outperforming placebo by a meaningful margin, if, if at all. And, and that's why I think we need research on, well, how does psychotherapy work? When people fail or succeed, what's the difference that, that leads to that failure or success? And that, that's what led me to the development of TEAM, because I did research studies, and others have confirmed the massive role of resistance and motivation in recovery from, from depression. And that's why we introduced this dimension when I created team, team therapy. It's not just changing cognitions and behaviors, but it's, it's drastically changing uh, motivation. And finally, I, I have to confess that there's a subject, subjectivity in, in the methods that we choose. Now, I, in my new book, Feeling Great, I've got over 100 methods listed to change negative thoughts and feelings and to help trouble, troubled relationships. But I don't personally, uh, you know, I react with strongly negatively on a subjective level to so-called inner child work. I heard a lecture on it at a conference I presented and some fellow, whoever created, you know, hugging your inner child was up there in front of the audience. And there must have been a thousand people and they were all weeping and standing and cheering and thinking this is better than, you know, French toast or something. But to my ear, it was, it was stupid and goofy. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying... It struck me that way, and, and it's not something I would use or would ever want to use, but if, it, if you love it and if it helps you... And but also what you're saying it. is, if a person who did, for example, inner child therapy, followed the team structure where they did testing oh, and, yeah. and empathy yeah. and paradoxical agenda setting yeah. and melted away the resistance... Yeah, and, it would be more way more effective. And then they did inner child work yeah. and testing, and if they did testing after that work... yeah then that would be more effective. It would be more effective, and they'd be showing that they're getting good results. Part of the problem is that research has shown that without testing, your perception of how your patient feels will not be accurate. So if a therapist says, oh, I'm getting great results with inner child work or, or body work, uh, and I say, what tests are you using? They say, oh, we don't do testing. Then I immediately dismiss what they're saying because they can't validly make such a claim. I've had so many patients who I had sessions, I thought, oh boy, this was fabulous, and they slammed me and actually got worse. I've had other sessions where I thought, my gosh, did I suck up the place. I didn't even offer the patient a follow-up appointment thinking they'll never want to see me again. I was so horrible. And then, all, then, I, then I got the, the feedback from the patient. I looked at the feedback, and they said, this is the greatest session we've ever had, and, and stuff like that. So you, you've got to you, you, you've got to be doing your own research on your own patients and, 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 and seeing, seeing how you're doing. And as you say, some therapists won't want to do it. I, I was on a podcast recently uh, with these really cool guys who... Not a feeling good podcast, another podcast. It's another one. They have a rational mode of behavior th therapy podcast. And uh, they, they had someone had asked them, they had only 100 listeners or something, and Someone had asked them, well, what do you think about this new team therapy? They didn't know much about it, but they really slammed it to just saying it was stupid and ridiculous. And so I offered 
to appear on their podcast with them and really praised them and told them how much I admired Albert Ellis. And we really developed a, fr a friendship. I used a lot of stroking and disarming, and, and they invited me for three in a row. Wow. And it was really fun. And then, but they were saying, oh, testing is stupid. I know how my patients feel, or, you know, mm -hmm. patients don't resist. If they're there with you, obviously they're motivated to get better. And, and, and I know I'm really empathic. I don't need to measure it. And then one of them is really a younger guy and a really nice guy. And months later, he says, you know, I'm thinking of creating Team REBT. <laughs> and what do you think? I said, well, yeah, go go for it. And then, then he said, well, could I maybe try your, your scales with some of my patients? And, and I, I said, yeah, go, go for it. But I have to warn you that uh, you, you may be shocked by the information you get. This was about four or five months ago, and then I've never heard from him since. Oh, that would be so, an interesting so, follow-up. Yeah, I'd love to hear, you know, how, how his data went. He should take one of the intensives. If before he yeah he's on the east, east coast but maybe he could come to my Atlanta intensive yeah but anyway that's 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 about it and I also told you that this body work somatic awareness training whatever it is massage uh, you know that in fact even I'm a psychiatrist and one of my malpractice uh, workshops I had to go to to learn how to reduce liability they just told us if you ever touch a patient and you're sued. Uh, you, you're, you're, uh, we will not defend you, and we will not pay your uh, uh, the set the fine. You know, if you're held found guilty in a trial and asked to pay a million dollars, it's going to come out of your pocket. They said you can touch your patients twice, uh, shake hands the first time you meet them, shake hands the last time, uh, the last session, and any touching other than that will consider to be an ethics violation and won't won't defend you. But also. I told you, and I'll shut up after this, that I did a workshop once with the, these people who were doing the somatic body work. And uh, so at the end of day one of the workshop, they, they, they said, oh, gosh, you're, you're missing out on this body work is so terrific. And it just has a 95% cure, cure rate. And if you have anything, we'll show you right now. I said, well, when I was little, I had the fear of heights, and then I used exposure and got over it. Now I'm my old age has come creeping back because I haven't done any exposure work. And then they said, well, lie down. They brought a mat in, and they did all this body work on me. For a phobia? Huh? They did body work for a phobia? Yeah, they said, oh, it's good for what ails you. They said it was actually been rated higher than McDonald's french fries. Mm. And Those are rated pretty high for phobias. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they were working all over on, on me and finding this phobia here and this problem there and this repressed thing here. And then they, <laughs> they worked me over there and pronounced me cured. And then we were going to have dinner later that evening. Uh, and, and so and I, I knew that. Did you climb a ladder and feel better? No, no, I was just so scared. I leaned over the awning at the or the railing at the hotel, and I got just as anxious as, as ever. It had no effect. Mm. And then the interesting thing is, at dinner, I told them that, and and it's like it went in one ear and out the other. And then they just kept talking about how fantastic body work was, and how it had a ninety-five percent cure rate or something like that. Mm. But at any rate, thank anyway, you. Anyway, I think the important thing is that it's the team structure that's yeah that's really what's important to you. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 that's right. The, the the see, I've often said that we we don't have schools of medicine, like we don't have like a penicillin school or a um, 
uh, or a whatever. See, my wife just broke her toe, and she dropped this heavy thing in the kitchen on her toe, and it, I guess it fractured her toe, and Ouch. she they had to remove her her toenail. Ouch! Uh, but but can you remember? Can you imagine if you if you broke your toe or your leg, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor gives you penicillin? And you say, why are you giving me penicillin? And say, well, I'm a penicillin doctor. So I give everyone penicillin. Yeah, yeah. and that's the same with, uh, if you go to a, a, a cognitive therapist, what, 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 what will you get? Cognitive therapy. If you go to a psychoanalyst, what will you get? Psychoanalytics. If you go to an EMDR therapist, what do you get? Eye movements. Eye movement. Eye jiggling. (laughs) (laughs) Jiggle your eyeballs, guy. You'll feel better. And... um, and and to me the, this this is just uh, just goofy, and sometimes when I say this, I say it with too much of a bite and hurt people's feelings. But let me just throw that out as as, as things to think about, maybe in terms of the philosophy mm-hmm. and the practical aspect of, of psychotherapy, and and where do we want our field to to have the ideas to improve healing uh, for people, and my goal. Whenever possible, it's not always possible, but it's a rapid and complete elimination of symptoms and then relapse prevention training so you get lasting good results. No one's uh, permitted to be happy all the time, right? but there's a great deal you can do to increase the ratio of happiness to misery due to the bumps in the road that we all run into from time to time. So David, thank you so much for clearing that up. That was really helpful. And, and how was my tone? I thought your tone was 95% respectful. Okay, okay. Well, that's way improvement <laughs> that for was me improvement. on this topic. That's I'm usually true. about 5% respectful and 95% uh, obnoxious. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about that. But David, tell us about the intensives. Oh, yeah, thanks. Well, there's going to be three intensives this summer. And if you want to learn more about TEAM, uh, they'll, they'll be great. Well, two this summer and one, I think, in November. Go to my website for the locations and specific dates, but the Calgary, Canada one will be in the middle of July, like July 15, 16, 17, 18, something like that. And uh, that, that's always a great one up in Canada. The cool thing about the uh, Canadian intensive, there's no evening sessions and so we often hike every evening and then have dinner together, whoever wants to. So oh. there's a chance for uh, personal work on the hikes, as well as I'll do personal work with someone in, in the workshop. Uh, but it's a chance to practice techniques to, to get personal healing at the same time. And then at the end of July, I'm going to do the annual, I, I don't know if it's the 6th or the 8th or the ninth annual summer intensive at the South San Francisco Conference Center. It's July 29th, 30th, 31st, and August 1st, a four-day intensive. And that's always the best of the year. Uh, Are you going to be there? I am going to be there. Teaching? Yeah. So the great Rhonda will be there. (laughs) The great Jill Levitt will be there. Jill and I will do a live demo with an audience volunteer the evening of day one. There's two. I mean, actually, there's a there are a lot of really really wonderful team therapists who are going to be there to help assist. Yeah. So you get all you get individual attention during the practice exercises from me and with tons of just really awesome. Awesome people. And then I'm going to do my first East Coast intensive in probably 25 years. Wow. 
uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and I think that one will be in uh, early November. I think it's November 3rd around there. Uh, yeah, right, and, and through there. So uh, go to my website, feelinggood.com, www.feelinggood.com, and then .com, and then click on the workshop tab, and you'll find uh, links to all three of those. Plus, there's other cool things coming up, some one-day ones with Jill that I'm, I'm going to be doing, one more this year and two next year. So there's lots of good stuff coming up. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this episode under the podcast page. You will also find archives of previous episodes and many resources for therapists and non-therapists. We welcome your comments and questions. If you want to support the show, please share the podcast with people who might benefit from it. You could also go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. The theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Rhonda Borowski. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.